This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Reagan Gillum, a host on the channel, and today I'm talking with Dr. Theodore Cohen, who is the author of the book, Finding Afro-Mexico, Race and Nation After the Revolution, published by Cambridge University Press. Dr. Cohen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, and thank you for having me today. Yeah, thank you so much for for coming, and I'm really looking forward to talking about your book. Um, So your book is called Finding Afro-Mexico, as I said, and the book really focuses on a series of um, intellectuals and cultural producers who are articulating and unearthing the Black presence in Mexico. So to begin, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, um, how you came to write this book, and how you became interested in Afro-Mexico? I consider myself to be an intellectual and cultural historian of modern Mexico and the African diaspora. And in particular, I'm interested in exploring the histories and cultures of nations not typically associated with the African diaspora. By looking at regions where blackness is not as visible in society, culture, and history, I feel like we could more thoroughly consider how diasporic methods and theories are practiced and what limits they might have. After all, where blackness is more elastic, the racialization of culture, space, and nation is more pronounced, or at least I think so. And in this way, it's really the production of knowledge that fascinates me, and I'm especially intrigued by its dialogic nature, how knowledge is produced and reproduced, circulated and consumed, and how this all acts at this nebulous intersection of culture and ideas and the confluence of history and historiography. Now, this, of course, is much more evident to me now, after I've researched and written Finding Afro-Mexico. In 2005, when I began the research for this book, I wanted to complete a social history of African-descended peoples in the state of Veracruz, where I thought I could link Mexican history to the Caribbean world and to the wider diaspora. But this didn't really work. I didn't have much success uncovering this history in the archives. And it left me as a historian in a tough position. I did not want to try to identify who was of African descent. If I did, I 
that I might impose my own definitions of blackness onto Mexico, a methodology that risked being imperialistic and unaware of Mexico's racial formations. And as a white man and a U.S. citizen, I wanted to prevent anything resembling that imperial gaze. Alternatively, I thought I could discuss how blackness disappeared, how it left the nation's social and cultural landscape. This was the dominant narrative in 2005, and in many ways it still is today. Yet I was also uncomfortable with it. Black disappearance assumed some true sense of blackness existed and then disappeared. It was too easy to take this idea and declare that people of African descent in Mexico didn't know who they truly were in the past and don't know who they truly are today. So I changed my approach, and I hope, hopefully it's evident in the book, and it led me to new sources and a new argument. I didn't want to ask a negative question like, why and how did black communities disappear? Instead, I asked, how did Mexican intellectuals and cultural producers define blackness as Mexican? And by investigating this question, I could talk about disappearance, but I didn't have to define Afro-Mexicans explicitly or implicitly in relation to a singular true identity that could disappear. So in other words, the relative lack of social visibility for African-descended Mexicans in the archives in the 20th century led me towards this intellectual and cultural history of how blackness became part of Mexican national identity in the 20th century, and especially after the 1910 revolution. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Um, and it, it, that's interesting to me as an anthropologist as well, because I talk to, you know, living people, and I always ask them how they identify. And so it just makes me think about then that, you know, th- when you're going into the archives, what, how do you, how do you, how do you deal with that? And so you just explained that to us really very well. And so um, the next question is about, I guess, the story that you want to tell with the book. And so I, when I was, I was, I became introduced to Afro-Latin America in a class that I took in college at the University of Virginia, and it was a history of race and ethnicity in Latin America. And we learned about Vasconcelos um, when we talked about Mexico. And the course, you know, it was like a gave us a variety of different countries. But when we talked about Mexico, we talked about Vasconcelos and the idea of La, la Raza Cosmica or the cosmic race and um, how this, how his ideas about race and in Mexico were uh, very fund- kind of very focused on racial mixture, um, which to me then is similar like to Gilberto Freire in Brazil. And so this is probably one of the most visible theories of race and nation in Mexico. Yet you want to tell a story um, that seems to be more complex in thinking about blackness and nation um, that maybe maybe moves us beyond Vasconcelos. And so what kind of story are you trying to tell about Afro-Mexico and what interventions did you want to make? Well, first of all, I'm so glad you brought up Jose Vasconcelos. And interestingly enough, we both kind of, sounds like, got exposed to these discussions and these debates through his La Raza Cosmica. It was the same thing for me as an undergrad. Mm-hmm. So I, I know exactly what you're ta- what you're where this question is coming from. And it's really sat with me since I before I even thought of going to graduate school. In in, in the US, I feel like Vasconcelos has blossomed into this point of departure for most studies of Mexico's African heritage. And I have the sneaky suspicion, I'm not hundred percent sure, but that there's a pretty simple reason for it. 
His polemic, The Cosmic Race, discusses the U.S. a lot, and the introduction has been translated into English by Didier Hayen. And these two facts alone make him accessible and relevant to U.S. audiences and great for undergraduate courses like yours and mine. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I, when I was reading him, some as an undergrad, more so once I got to graduate school, is that what caught my attention is that he wrote very briefly about Mexico's African heritage, when that Mexican history class that I took in college really didn't otherwise address the diaspora. And I, was, I wondered why. And by graduate school, I started to notice a pattern. Many scholars, especially in the U.S., critiqued his conception of blackness and racial mixture for being racist, which it certainly is. I'm, I'm not trying to resuscitate it in any way. Yet I wondered why intellectuals like him would be critiqued for discussing blackness in Mexico when so few Mexicans chose to do so. And this led me to ask if Vasconcelos and his racist or awkward or uncomfortable reinterpretation of 19th century racial hierarchies was the most coherent or even the most important construction of blackness in Mexico after the 1910 revolution. And after doing more research in the archives and reading outside of it, I decided that I wanted to write a history that centered on the few people who truly were interested in exploring Mexico's African heritage. And there were two in particular, anthropologist Gonzalo Aguirre Beltran and local city of Veracruz poet and chronicler Francisco Rivera. And in finding Afro-Mexico, I want to reveal these intellectual and cultural debates that not only encourage these two men to explore Mexican blackness, but also the artists, musicians, historians, archaeologists, anthropologists, dancers, and others who discussed it in more brief terms and through other pursuits. So for instance, there's artist Miguel Covarrubias, who participated in the New Negro movement and in archaeological expeditions to determine whether the cultural expressions he investigated were indigenous, African-descended, or some combination thereof. Composers Carlos Chavez and Jerónimo Baqueru Foster make appearances as they move between modernist and indigenous networks as they use jazz to recognize and modernize the nation's African-descended music. And Marxist José Mancisidor moved effortlessly between fiction and nonfiction to craft a national narrative that celebrated slave revolts and venerated the abolition of slavery and caste. And so what I wanted, the story I want to tell in this book is how blackness came to be part of Mexican national identity, how it became culturally visible and eventually socially visible as it moved across cultural expressions and disciplinary methods in different political projects and generations of Mexican history. And ultimately, this history, I I feel, can't be reduced to the goals or the ideas of one discipline or any one person, and especially our good friend, Jose Vasconcelos, who I felt like I had to talk about, but I didn't want to talk about any more than I needed to. <laughs> yeah, def- definitely. Um, no, and that's, that's really important. And I thought, and I'm, I'm glad that you, I'm glad that you expand upon, upon that because it's, it's really an important area. And it, for me, it picks up where that sort of that class in a way left off, which, but then I, of course I also read it in relationship to much of the research I've done. Um, but with me, 
uh, with ethnography in, in Brazil and blackness. Um, but the, the story that you're telling, um, it begins after the revolution of 1910, which established Mexico as a republic. And of course, the book's title um, includes, um, you know, finding Afro-Mexico, race and nation after the revolution. Um, so how did blackness play into this refashioning of Mexican national identity and and come into to the formation of the Mexican Republic? So any discussion of the Mexican Revolution kind of always just starts with this idea of who, who's participating. And of course, African descended Mexicans participated in this 1910 revolution. But what's interesting is they didn't mobilize in a way that caught the attention of the post-revolutionary elites in the same way that indigenous communities, for instance, led by Emiliano Zapata did. And so as a result, the way I kind of conceptualize how blackness was refashioned was by thinking about how it first and foremost lived among abstractions as a way to cast a positive light on Mexican racial formations and on the post-revolutionary project more broadly. No one had to write about this. But what that's important for us to keep in mind then is it means that any discussion of blackness was really a radical act pushing those boundaries of Mexican nationalism. And so blackness came to be part of post-revolutionary nation formation through a larger project really made famous by anthropologist Manuel Gamio in his 1916 book, Forjando Patria, Forging the Nation. And in it, he argued that the state needed to study and understand all the peoples in the nation if the new state after the revolution was going to rule benevolently and integrate everyone into a new democratic society. And this created a space for anthropologists, composers, historians, and anyone else with any ethnographic or historical proclivities to travel across the country and to study all of the nation's peoples and cultures. And in doing so, these post-revolutionary nationalists uncovered the histories and cultural expressions of people of African descent in Mexico. And they found these histories and they noted the culture, how they contemporary cultural expressions had origins in the colonial period, for instance, with the popular Mexican song La Bamba, or in the 1930s, Marxist historical materialism took hold of many of the left-leaning intellectuals across Mexico. And we typically think of this dimension of post-revolutionary cultural politics in relation to murals painted by Diego Rivera and Jose Clemente Orozco and David Alfaro Siqueiros, but it was a larger movement than them and what they painted. And Marxist cultural politics also celebrated Mexico's insurgent tradition, in part to explain that 1910 revolution that had just taken place. So for instance, Jose Mancisidor, a historian, studied and feted Gaspar Yanga, an Angolan who led a slave revolt and established arguably the first free black community in the Americas at the beginning of the 17th century. And Mancisidor placed Yanga as the first of a revolutionary quartet that symbolized all of Mexican history, a pantheon that continued with African-descended independence-era leader Jose Maria Morelos, and then with Benito Juarez, and most recently with Emiliano Zapata from the Mexican Revolution. And so blackness came to be part of this culture and history and just the national narrative visible in art 
heard in music, read in history books, and eventually it would become part of a post-revolutionary society where people would even, by the 21st century, begin to act on it as people of African descent. And so these expressions, these histories, these narratives that I'm trying to piece together allowed the post-revolutionary Mexican state to be able to claim, or at least they claimed, that they were democratic and inclusive in a way that Mexico had not been before 1910. Mm-hmm. And so that's um, really interesting, the the use of, uh, of Blackness, like you said, to integrate um, everyone into the nation and make it a democratic, um, make it a democratic society. And so one of the reasons I think people will really like the book is because you really focus on cultural producers and music and performance. Um, and so after the revolution, some Mexican cultural producers are embracing jazz music as a visual and, and oral aesthetic. And so I was especially taken with the figure of Miguel Corvarubias, who you, you mentioned um, in a previous answer. And and you focus on um, his, one of the things you focus on is these images that he made, these sketches of African-American dance figures and musical figures that he made after he traveled to Harlem, New York. Um, but, but jazz plays a, a, a big role in the, in the book. And so I wondered, how does that help construct this transnational blackness in Mexico? Oh. I'm so glad you asked this. I, I love Miguel Covarrubias' art. It was so much fun to study and include him, and I, I hope just the joy I had when I was going through his archives and his images comes through. But I, I really came to the discussion of jazz initially when I was studying the Mexican song La Bamba from the state of Veracruz. And in, in the 1930s, Mayan flautist and composer Jeronimo Baqueru Foster, noted that this popular song had African-descended melodies, harmonies, and rhythms. And as he began to transcribe it and turn it into something he considered to be his following his own ethnomusicological sensibility, he actually composed a version of it for jazz orchestra in 1938. And what I eventually realized as I was thinking about how he was combining La Bamba and jazz was that jazz was a vehicle for Mexican composers like him to understand Mexican music and its African heritage. Many of the people in in finding Afro-Mexico, like Miguel Covarrubias, became familiar with jazz, like you've already mentioned, when they spent time in the 20s and 30s in the U.S., often in New York, where they would go to nightclubs in Harlem. And there, Covarrubias and others like him experienced the glorification of jazz and other Afro-diasporic cultural expressions, whether with the New Negro movement or Afro-Cubanismo or others that were melting in this cosmopolitan city. And there they met and worked with African-Americans like Langston Hughes, Zora Neale Hurston, Catherine Dunham, and William Grant Still. And Covarrubias celebrated many of them in caricature. He illustrated many of their books and befriended them as well. This cultural milieu was like anything they had experienced in Mexico, where Black music had traditionally been considered dangerous, and it was thought to be a threat to the nation's indigenous and racially mixed soundscapes. So when composers and artists like Covarrubias returned to Mexico, they brought their love of jazz with its spontaneity and brash harmonics and rhythms and its seemingly insurgent ethos with them. 
In the 1930s, jazz aesthetics resonated with Mexico's celebration of all things insurgent, and it became a way for Mexicans to see Black culture as modern and cosmopolitan, heard in movie theaters and even in some orchestral works like George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, just like it was in New York and other metropoles around the world. And so in broader terms, jazz was part of the post-revolutionary desire to celebrate and study Mexican peoples and cultures and free the country from the pre-revolutionary aesthetics that looked to Europe for inspiration. And in doing so, it brought in these cultural flows that were moving back and forth across the Atlantic that were inspiring Freire in Brazil to people in Cuba and across the Caribbean to the U.S. to Mexico. And as the director of the Department of Music within the Department of Fine Arts, composer Luis Sandi summed it up, and I think probably in the best way I ever found, was speaking of Mexican music in the 1930s, he noted that it, quote, has descended from the heights of the unreal to the everyday reality of everyone. It has moved away from the gavats and minuets of a refined and faraway aristocracy to move closer to the jazz of the black slaves of all countries and to the dances of the enslaved Indians of America. It has become the spokesperson for the humble in contrast to the public announcements of the splendors of the dominant castes. And so I think jazz just embodied so much of how Black identity in Mexico was able to be in conversation with what was going on in the U.S. and so much else in the Atlantic in the interwar period. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for that. Um, and as I was reading it as an anthropologist, I was really struck by the role of ethnography in your book. And so, of course, the book is a historical account of how, how uh, Blackness you know, became Mexican or became integrated within the Mexican uh, nation and ideas of nationalism. Um, but you also have this figure of Melville Herskovitz, um, who plays a, a role in the book, and his interactions with Gonzalo Aguirre Beltran, who you mentioned um, earlier, who's a Mexican ethnographer of Black culture. And Aguirre is also central in developing Afro-Mexican studies um, in, in Mexico. And what was the relationship between Herskovitz and Aguirre? And, and what is the role uh, for you of ethnography in finding Afro-Mexico? In, in a lot of ways, I think ethnography is really at the core of what most of the f- people I study were doing, even if they weren't trained ethnographers, is they were really going around the country and thinking about what are people doing and what are their cultural expressions and how do we understand them and how do we locate them in a specific place. But what's interesting is in comparison to many of the countries in the Americas that we typically associate with the African diaspora, Mexico came to the study of its African heritage a little later, really during and after the Second World War. At the time, Mexican scholars were really, in response to the horrors in Europe and in Asia, beginning to ask whether the nation had an African heritage, even while some were still doubting the legitimacy of that very question. And so we have to, that context has to sit in our minds as we think about Herskovitz and Aguirre Beltran 
And so, for instance, in 1945, Remy Bastien, a Haitian anthropology student in Mexico, was even complaining to Melville Herskovitz that most Mexican ethnographers just don't even know what they're talking about when it comes to African-descended peoples and cultures. And by that point, in the 1930s and 40s, Herskovitz was, as we all know, becoming one of the leading, if not the leading figure in the comparative study of African cultural retentions in the Western Hemisphere. In Mexico, Gonzalo Aguirre Batran was, at Manuel Gamio's suggestion, beginning his the first historical study of Mexico's colonial African enslaved population. An archival research project that would, in 1946, become his first book, La Población Negra de México, The Black Population of Mexico. And Aguirre Beltrán initially wanted to, to conceive of this work, and he researched it really without any reference to research in any other country in the Americas, something that would eventually very much dismay Melville Herskovitz. But since Mexico was this undiscovered, really big country when it comes to the African diaspora at this point, Herskovitz was interested in it, and he caught wind of Aguirre Beltran's research and wanted to work with him. Mexico was not yet part of this comparative analysis for Herskovitz. So he brought him Aguirre Beltran to Northwestern University with a Rockefeller Foundation grant for the 1944-45 academic year. And really there, Herskovitz took on the role of mentor, sending Aguirre Beltran across the U.S. to see the diversity of African-American cultural and intellectual life. Most importantly, Herskovitz challenged Aguirre Beltran to read the histories and ethnographies of African-descended peoples in the U.S., in Cuba, Haiti, Brazil, and throughout the Americas. And this gave Aguirre Beltran the tools to trace African cultures back to Africa and to engage in that comparative, what we might now call transnational history that Herskovitz made so famous. And this gave him the ability to apply Herskovitz methods and theories to Mexico and really establish in the 40s and 50s and into the 60s the ethnographic and historical foundations for the field of Afro-Mexican studies as we understand them today. And so another one of um, Herskovitz's, I guess, uh, uh, maybe students that you have in the book is Catherine Dunham. And um, and she's, of course, uh, uh, she, she studied anthropology and she particularly study dance throughout the African diaspora. And as anthropologists, I think we're accustomed to thinking of her in the Caribbean, like in Haiti, um, and learning dances from those places. But you situate her for us in Mexico with the performance of La Bamba. Um, and she's also, you know, presenting her research in, in Haiti for Mexican audiences, and she's visiting uh, Veracruz. Um, and so and so she's an example of your use of performance to talk about the elaboration of blackness in Mexico. And so what does Catherine Dunham um, and performance uh, do for, for the Afro presence in Mexico? That's a great question. I, I think Gunham performs and her performances kind of serve couple, two, two main roles in finding Afro-Mexico. First, her, her performances were really celebrated every time she came to, to Mexico in 1947 and then when she returned in 1955. And so this 
helps us see a window into how Mexicans, including artists like her friend Miguel Covarrubias, embraced African-American and Afro-diasporic cultural expressions. And so that transnational worldview that we've already been talking about with jazz, she's very much filling and continuing that role in the post-war period. And so she arrived in the summer of 1947 in Mexico City amid a flourish of African-American performers that decade, which also included some other notable names like Marian Anderson and Pearl Primus. And I think what's important here is that we can see Mexico's embrace not just of Dunham, but of African-American performers more generally, especially since African-descended Mexicans were not in the spotlight. And so this African-American presence demonstrates how Mexicans saw Afro-diasporic culture and celebrated it as a way to reject racial segregation and to celebrate Black aesthetics and politics. And so newspapers celebrated the beauty of Marian Anderson's Black spirituals and the outpouring of emotion that she was able to achieve in song with Catherine Dunham. Newspapers praised her as a trained ballerina and as an ethnographer in tandem, so very much emphasizing some of that interdisciplinarity that I think is so key to the textures that I'm trying to unravel in the book. She graced magazines and newspapers, which affectionately called her La Catarina, and writers celebrated how she proudly claimed and performed the art of a misunderstood race. And artists like Covarrubias drew her and caricature sent her photos, invited their, her to their homes, and even toured the country with her. And Dunham noted how warmly she was received by these artists, by President of Mexico, and all of this in contrast to the well-known segregation that she and other African-American performers encountered in the U.S., and this contrast is, was so critical for Mexicans who acknowledged the racial aspects of her performances and her aesthetics, but who believed that art should be judged by the art, not by the performer, and especially not by the performer's race. And so she really allowed, through her performances, that dimension of Mexican racial nationalism to come through. But the other part is she eventually in her performances and in her ethnographic work, learned of La Bamba's African heritage and the African heritage of other music from Veracruz. And after she left in the fall of 1947, she began to transform Veracruz's music into a ballet called Veracruzana that she would eventually perform on Broadway and around the world, and including in Mexico when she returned in 1955. And by 1955, Mexicans noted on the radio and in newspapers that she would not only be performing for them, and not just performing Afro-diasporic dance and music, but that she would be performing Mexican music as part of her Afro-diasporic work. So in other words, her, her performances brought many of these cultural expressions and ethnographic observations that I studied to life, and she made them ready to be consumed in Mexico and globally. And thus, she solidified Mexico's place in the African diaspora and in a very concrete way, the African diaspora's place also in post-revolutionary Mexico. Mm-hmm. And so as we've been talking, um, we've mentioned a variety of different figures 
um, some of whom, you know, are African Americans. And you also, we've talked about Catherine Dunham. You also mentioned the name of, of Langston Hughes. Um, and then you've also mentioned uh, Yanga, who was a Afro-Mexican um, uh, early person who uh, established a, a, like a, a, free, a free community, right? Um, and so I was struck by the fact that Afro-Mexico is not only African descendant people in Mexico or say descendants of enslaved people in Mexico, which is what I initially thought you know it would be, um, but it includes African Americans, the Caribbean, Cuba, Haiti. Um, so there's a variety of different influences as we've uh, also talked about. And so was this one of your aims for the book to expand uh, the boundaries of blackness in, in Mexico? It is, and it also wasn't. So I kind of feel like my answer is yes and no here. Mm-hmm. I always wanted to connect Mexico to the larger intellectual and cultural networks of the African diaspora. And that was in many ways how I began to conceive of this project. And this is where the literature that I found to be the most useful was when I began. And in particular, I first used Melville Herskovitz's archives at Northwestern University to examine his correspondence with Aguirre Beltran. And everything in some fashion kind of extends out from that first step. So in really broad terms, I did I really didn't want to isolate Mexico from the rest of the diaspora. So that scholars of Mexico who might not be looking in these transnational spaces that I am would see the importance of the diaspora for Mexican society, but also so Afro-diasporic scholars who might be more familiar with Langston Hughes or Melville Herskovitz would then think maybe I do need to look to Mexico. But ultimately, I I discussed African-Americans, Cubans, Haitians, not really to think about how African-Americans became Afro-Mexican or Haitians became Afro-Mexican in in that literal sense of informing Afro Mexican identity and culture, but rather as a way to help place Mexican cultural expressions in a larger transnational and sometimes even global context. And so everything, at least I hope, in finding Afro-Mexico kind of in one way or another goes back to how Mexicans understood that colonial era enslavement of Africans and how they made those legacies relevant after the 1910 revolution. But in doing so, I hope that Cuba, the Caribbean, Haiti, Africa, Brazil, the U.S., all of those places are also making a key contribution to the conception and the history of what is and who is Mm Afro-Mexico. That definitely does that. And so so you just mentioned that you started in uh, Melville Herskovitz's archive. Um, And so my next question, I was going to ask you about the researching and writing of the book. And I wondered if you could if you could recall any um, challenges or opportunities, um, any surprises um, or chance findings that you had, or just um, share with us a little bit about your process of of researching uh, and uncovering the materials that would go into the making of finding Afro-Mexico? So I think the most challenging part of my research was that I was entering a topic that was really defined by racial erasure or really by the trope of of Black disappearance. 
And so most scholars assumed that because Mexicans did not construct blackness as it was articulated in the U.S. or Brazil or other parts of the diaspora, that it was silenced or erased. And it seemed that there was this tacit assumption that black social invisibility begat a black archival invisibility. And so when I began my research, unsurprisingly, I found in Mexico no archival folders or boxes dedicated to blackness in 20th century Mexico. And I certainly didn't find a national archive tasked with preserving blackness in Mexico. And so I I really had to try to get around this and figure out how do I tell this history without Again, as I, I think I said earlier on, without falling back into this trap of just disappearance. And I decided ultimately, and I think the Herskovitz archive at Northwestern and also in Harlem at the Schoenberg Center really helped me do that. Because I came to realize that I could research the individuals who studied and talked about Mexico's African heritage. And that I had to find and use their archives and pull them together. And that allowed me to look at the diverse disciplinary and cultural threads that made up my research. And so in other words, I had to bring to life the intellectual and cultural networks found in letters and footnotes in institutions and let them reveal the history. I think probably the the saving archival grace I had was when I was in Mexico City at using the archives of the composer Jeronimo Baquero Foster. And he, he was an avid scrapbooker. And I had never thought of scrapbooking as being an archival shortcut. But looking through all of the stuff that he clipped out of newspapers and magazines, whether it was about what he wrote and composed or just about anything else, including Catherine Dunham coming to Mexico, gave me this rich historical and cultural context that allowed me to bring so much of what I do throughout the book to life in in a way that I had never thought I could find. So I think that was really a chance finding, as as you put it, that really just helped me with the book. And and I I think tangential to your question, but as a side note, I'm I'm sure there are so many more references to African descended peoples in Mexico's archives for the 20th century than I found, and especially people of African descent. And I'm really hoping that future researchers will take inspiration from what I'm doing and try to go back and reconstruct those social histories that I didn't do and find. And so I'm really hoping that this there's another wave coming that can do what I was unable to locate, whether ethnographically or archivally. Mm-hmm, definitely, I hope to. I hope this out of this blossoms, uh, like you said, a, a, a resurgence, if you will, of interest in Afro Mexico in general, and um, and then in particular in in history. I'm I'm always for more Afro <laughs> Latin <laughs> America. <laughs> however, however, it's going to come. Um, Aren't we all? Yes. <laughs> so I. Definitely, I'm with you um, on that. I hope. I just hope. I just want more. <laughs> um, and so, uh, this takes me to the the question, I guess, about how your book helps us understand the the like what what you think is the the legacy of this material is. And and I just wanted to share 
something where I, I was teaching a class on Afro-Latin America and I had a student, this was, um, who, who came up to me and we were talking about blackness in Puerto Rico. And the student said, Puerto Rico sounds like Mexico, except we don't have any black people. And this was in about 2017 uh, or so. And so I said, no, no, you do have black people in Mexico. And we kind of went back and forth about it. And I gave them some references, but I said, no, there are black people in Mexico. And then when I was there recently before the pandemic um, in Mexico City, I heard a commercial on the radio talking about uh, Black Mexicans in the census. And so today, Mexico seems to be continuing to find Afro-Mexico Mexico in official surveys. And there's a film called La Negrada. But I wondered, how does your book help us understand these current uh, engagements with Blackness in Mexico? That, that, that's a really important question. Something that I I try to bring out in the book, especially because so many of these surveys from 2015 and the census from last year happened either just as I was finishing the research or for the census as the book was coming out. But I, I tried to I try to hint at this uh, as I st- open the book and then also at the end. But throughout finding Afro-Mexico, I break down racial visibility into four components, spatial, cultural, social, and demographic. And what I try to do and argue is show how Black spatial and cultural visibility set the stage for Blackness eventually in the 20th century to become socially visible and then quantifiable with demographic surveys by the 21st century. And so in the decades after the revolution, Blackness was most visible in regional cultural expressions like La Bamba and in local histories told by Marxist historians. And gradually into the second half of the 20th century, anthropologists like Gonzalo Aguirre Beltran and artists like Miguel Covarrubias began to trace that history and connect it with these regional expressions. And that allowed people in those regions where there was... the enslavement of Africans, and where there are African-descended cultural expressions, to have some feeling that, hey, maybe I have African ancestry. And so this ethnographic and cultural process helped make Blackness visible in Mexican society. And then with that, the residents along the coast of Chica, of Oaxaca, and Guerrero, and in the state of Veracruz, could then utilize these identities for their own political and social benefit to negotiate with the state. And so with that social visibility and that racial consciousness, they were able to then be counted demographically, just like the federal government did on the Intercentral Survey in 2015 and on the national census in 2020, when more than 2.5 million people identified as being Black, Afro-Mestizo, or African-descended. And so I I really hope that my book is providing that intellectual and cultural history that helps us understand how we get to this current moment. And when we have these engagements through film and politics about what Blackness signifies in contemporary Mexico. Mm -hmm. It definitely, definitely does, does that. It came at at just the, just the right moment, I think, when we're, we're really seeing this again, this visibility of Blackness in in Mexico um, and in Latin America in general. And so now that the the book is out, um, 
what what projects are you working on now or what you know what projects do you have on the horizon to that you're that you're currently engaged with so in a lot of ways i see my next book project continuing these questions that i've been asking and we've been talking about today but I, I, i'm thinking they're going i'm going to try to invert them and focus a little more on the us and a little less on mexico and so at the end of Finding Afro-Mexico, I include a map from a section of the Black nationalist magazine, The Black World. And this map was used in the early 1970s, and it demarcates the Black world as they understood it. And for the Americas, only two countries were not included, Mexico and Canada. And as I think about this map, especially since I sent the book off to the presses, I started to think about the Underground Railroad in the U.S. before the Civil War, when Mexico and Canada symbolized the international sites of Black freedom and were therefore parts of the racial geography of the Black radical tradition. Yet this map from the 1970s has taken Mexico and Canada out of that Black radical tradition, out of the Black world. And so I'm curious, and I think I want to try to figure out how to trace this history of the geographies of Black freedom and Black radicalism from the mid-19th century to the mid to late 20th, and to pay attention to how Mexico and Canada do and do not and come in and leave these visions of the African diaspora, and to see what their eventual departure, so to speak, from the diaspora means for the politics and theories of Black liberation and racial liberalism and decolonization, civil rights, and more broadly. Great. So we will be on the lookout uh, for that for that work. Um, so I've been speaking with uh, Dr. Theodore Cohen, the author of Finding Afro-Mexico, Race and Nation After the Revolution, published by Cambridge University Press. Thank you so much for writing this book, and thanks for talking about it and sharing it with us uh, here on the podcast at the New Books Network. Well, thank you for having me.